Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the weekly UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. In today's episode, we cover two murders and a violent attack, all connected by just one man, Colin Hatch. It was July 1993. Take That were at number one in the UK single charts with Prey, and top of the US album charts was Barbara Streisand with Back to Broadway. Wow. For those of us old enough, it's hard to believe that was really 23 years ago, isn't it? Obviously, I can only just recall it. And moving on. In football, the first ever UK Premier League had just concluded and had been won by Manchester United. But it had also been a really successful year for North London team Arsenal, who'd won both domestic cup competitions. Now, for those of you who don't follow English football, If you live in the North London area, you are likely to follow one of the two huge North London teams, Tottenham Hotspur or Arsenal. Seven-year-old Sean Williams lived in Finchley, North London. He was Arsenal mad, and that summer he could name every member of the Arsenal team. Along with his friends and family, he loved to follow their success. Sean and his family had recently moved from Barnet to Finchley, It's not a long distance, it's four stops on the Northern Tube Line, which takes around 10 minutes. Well, except when you're in a hurry, of course, and it feels more like three hours. On March the 26th, 1993, Sean's parents took over the tenancy of the George Pub in Finchley. Sean was a very easy child to get on with, with a really happy outlook and he had lots of friends. His mum, Lynn, said, You would tell him to do something and he would do it. He was a really happy boy and he loved his cuddles. Now, do you remember those long summer evenings, playing with your friends when you were seven years old? In the summer of 1993, Sean spent his summer playing outside the pub with his mates. They spent their time playing football and riding their BMX bikes. This was his other main passion, and he was bike crazy. The pub car park was in a quiet residential area with lots of flats and houses all around. The local children all played outside, and Sean's mum and the other mums kept a close eye on him. Growing up in London at that time, this is just how it was for most children. On July the 23rd, Sean went to the dentist in the afternoon. At 5.30pm, his mum Lynn saw Sean cycling around the car park with one of his friends. She said, I'll see you later, Sean, to which she shouted back, I love you, mum. And this is the last time that Lynn saw Sean alive. Lynn adds, The next thing I remember is sitting in the back of the car and someone said he had been murdered. Just half an hour later, Sean's body was found by a postman, Joshua Bryant, in a tower block close to the pub in Norfolk Close, Finchley. His body was found wrapped inside two black bin liners and a supermarket carrier bag had been taped over his head. When Joshua first examined the package, he believed that the packaging contained a dead dog that had been left in the lift by an owner who just wanted to discard of a dead animal. You could understand this as Sean wasn't large, he weighed in at just four stone and four pounds and he was four foot two inches tall. Joshua used a paper knife to cut open the package and you can just imagine his horror to discover that inside was the lifeless body of a small boy. Sean was still warm but there was no pulse. This was just half an hour after his mum Lynn had last seen him. It didn't take the police long to track down the prime suspect for the murder, Colin Hatch. Hatch was 21 years old and he was known in the area as a loner who wasn't very good with people. He lived on the 10th floor of the building where Sean's body had been found in the lift. 
Hatch was known by locals as the doorman because of the time he spent at the ground floor entrance to his block, even though he lived on the 10th floor. Hatch didn't have a job and almost every day he was seen holding the door open for people entering and leaving the block, but most of the time he was watching the local children playing outside. Although residents thought him a little strange and some spoke of being a little unnerved by his actions, he was seen as harmless. The commonly held view around that part of Finchley was he was just a bit of a mummy's boy. However, if the residents had known more about Colin Hatch, they would quickly have realised he was anything but harmless. Hatch had experienced a terrible childhood. His mother was regularly beaten by his father, who was a bisexual transvestite with a major drink problem. Witnessing drunken rages were a common experience when Hatch was growing up. His parents subsequently split when he was young, but he suffered a number of issues arising from what he had experienced. Bedtimes were not a pleasant time for Hatch, as he still wet his bed at a very advanced age, and he suffered from terrible nightmares. During the day, he regularly had screaming fits. He developed a love of buses, despite later telling a psychiatrist that when he was just 12, he'd been raped by a bus driver. From an early age, Hatch didn't spend too much time at school. He regularly played truant. With few friends, he retreated into a fantasy world, which nothing too unusual there. That's what a lot of children do, as we know, to escape unhappiness in their real life. The problem with the world inhabited by Hatch is it was such a dark and disturbed place, one dominated by fantasies about very young boys and young girls. Unfortunately, these thoughts didn't stay as fantasy and quickly led to a string of sexually motivated offences. We can't say for sure which early attacks he may have carried out, which weren't reported and so he evaded justice, but his first conviction was when he was just 15 years old. In this case, he received a sentence of two years supervision for assaulting a 14-year-old boy. This acted as no deterrent and just six months later he molested an 11-year-old boy and on this occasion Hatch received a suspended sentence. Three years later, Hatch kidnapped and assaulted another 14-year-old boy, for which he was given two years probation. In December 1991, Hatch was 19 years old. His behaviour was rapidly spiralling out of control, and he was jailed for three and a half years for attacking a younger victim this time, an eight-year-old boy. This occurred in Streatham, south-east London, and was a truly terrifying attack. Hatch lured his victim to the laundry room of a block of flats, where he sexually abused him and then put his hands around his throat and strangled him until the boy lost consciousness. The boy only escaped his life as Hatch panicked and fled the scene before the boy was killed. The savage nature of this attack brought Hatch to the attention of experts. On this occasion, his own lawyer warned that he could kill when released. Dr Anthony Wilkins, a psychiatrist, also urged the court that Hatch should be sent to Broadmoor Top Security Hospital. That's the institution that until recently housed the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe. But doctors at Broadmoor did not consider Hatch dangerous enough and instead he was put into a mainstream jail. In April 1993, a month after Sean Williams and his family moved to Finchley, Hatch was released from custody. One of the conditions was that he regularly saw a psychiatrist at a clinic, but this doesn't seem to have been enforced with any rigour at all. 
One appointment with a psychotherapist at the Portman Clinic in Hampstead, which specialised in sex offenders, was scheduled for the 17th of June, but this was cancelled by Hatch. The appointment was rearranged, but this was in turn cancelled by the consultant and was rearranged for the 23rd of July, four days after Sean was killed. When in custody, Hatch had admitted to struggling to control his sexual behaviours and aggression, and a weekly appointment with a probation worker was scheduled, so it was really to give Hatch some guidance on strategies to cope with these, these, these compulsions he was feeling. However, the authorities just didn't realise just how dangerous Hatch really was. When in custody, he'd never fully told them just how prevalent his fantasies were and just how strong an urge he had to ensure they actually came true. He played the authorities. He told them what they needed to hear to ensure his quick release. He made it difficult for them to get inside his mind while he was planning for his release and he certainly did not share what he was going to do when he was out. Now, though he didn't share this verbally with workers in the authorities, Hatch did keep written accounts of his fantasies. In one he documented, I will be so happy when I get out. In February, I'm going to make up for this missed time. I'm going to have as many as possible, young girls and boys. I enjoy feeling power to rule over lesser persons, less physically strong than me. His fantasies were depraved and, and really beyond human comprehension. They involved both young boys and girls. One involved kidnapping a young boy on a bus and throttling him until he lost consciousness. He would then briefly let him revive before killing him and then spending the whole night riding around on the bus with the dead boy under a seat. Another fantasy was called My Sexual Experiences of a Ten-Year-Old Girl. Chillingly, Hatch described being in his bedroom and looking out of the window at a schoolgirl walking on her own through a playground. In his fantasy, Hatch invites the girl into his house for a drink of milk and he tries to put her at ease. He tells her, don't worry, I, I don't bite, there's no need to be frightened. Hatch then records in significant details exactly what happened next. I'll spare you the horrific detail, but the girl is attacked, raped, strangled, and her body is wrapped in bin liners before being dumped in a cemetery. Hatch continues, I'm shaking like a leaf, but I don't feel sick. I should do. It ends with the word, great. After leaving prison, Hatch went to live with his mother, Sandra, and his older brother at the Tower Block in Finchley, Norfolk Court. Almost unbelievably, after what we've just heard of his secret fantasies, the view from his new bedroom was looking over the playground used by local children. For Hatch, this is just what he'd wanted and fantasised about. He waited, knowing that it was no longer a matter of if, but when. It was now just about waiting for the right opportunity and the right victim. On the 19th of July 1993, Hatch was, as usual, on the door of his tower block, watching the children. He initially approached a 10-year-old boy under the guise of asking him to help him set up a Nintendo Game Boy. The boy was willing to help Hatch, but, fortunately for him, at the moment of moving inside the block, a woman who the boy knew walked past, and this meant that Hatch was unable to proceed with his plans for this child. The next child spotted by Hatch was Sean. Nobody saw exactly what happened, but at 5.35pm, a resident saw Sean resting his bike against the wall of the flats. 
Just 10 minutes later, Hatch had killed Sean. In January 1994, Colin Hatch appeared at the Old Bailey to face a charge of murder. Hatch denied murder, instead pleading guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. His defence was that he was driven to attack Sean by a sexual compulsion over which he had no control. Ahead of the case, prosecutor John Bevin addressed the jury to give them an indication of what was in store. He said, This is a most unpleasant case. Parts of the evidence are chilling. It's important you keep your emotions out of the case so far as is humanly possible and concentrate coldly, clinically, on what the evidence does or does not prove. The issue is what was the mental responsibility of the defendant at the time he killed Sean. Although Bevan said this, I wonder how how you would feel if you were part of the jury. It had been very difficult to listen to objectively. Making the case for the prosecution, Bevan continued, Sean had been enjoying the harmless pursuit of biking before he was abducted and killed. There would have been no time for conversation or chatting or Hatch trying to seduce the boy. He was grabbed, taken to the 10th floor into the bedroom, stripped, sexually assaulted and strangled. He was then put into two bin liners which were taped together. Sean was put back into the lift and his body was found at 5.45pm. Of course, when we hear these details now, we are drawn to his previous offences and his written fantasies, including the the schoolgirl whose body was disposed in a similar way. The evidence from one witness was she'd seen a package in the lift as she went downstairs in the same lift to go shopping. As she then walked out of the block, she saw Hatch there. She described him as being drained of all colour, like a ghost. As for Hatch, he tried to blame the murder on another boy, but this version of events could not be sustained when his written fantasies were discovered. They were actually found in the wardrobe of his mother. The similarities with what happened to Sean could not be ignored. The contents of this wardrobe also included a mutilated child's doll with pubic hair stuck between its legs, a number of sex toys and obscene pictures of young children. Hatch eventually gave an account of what had really happened that evening. Sean had arrived at his tower block to meet one of his friends. When he saw Sean, he offered to take him to the flat where the other boy lived, but instead he led him to the 10th floor. Hatch told police that after he had simulated sex with Sean, the boy was scared and had said, I just want to go home. He'd started walking towards the window, obviously to shout for help, but I could not let him go. I held him by the throat. He started struggling and I tightened my grip. Hatch said he got a plastic bag, put it over Sean's head and suffocated him. He then dumped his body in the lift. And the whole attack probably lasted no more than five minutes. Hatch denied that he'd intended to kill the boy or that he'd derived any sexual pleasure from it. But it happened because he just panicked. Bevan, as you can imagine, and the prosecution were incredulous at this line of defence. He said, his writings include references to deliberately killing. In the fantasy story, lack of consent is part of the story. That's part of the excitement. Killing and disposing of the body was part of the plan. Unsurprisingly, Hatch's explanation wasn't believed and on the 28th of January 1994, the jury found Hatch guilty of the murder of Sean Williams. The verdict was met by cheers from the public gallery. 
Judge Nina Larry sentenced him to life, making it clear he should never be freed. She said, It is plain to me that when at liberty, you are highly dangerous to the public, and medical opinion today is that you are likely to remain so for the foreseeable future. It is not possible today to envisage any circumstances in which you could be safely released from prison, and, in my judgment, you should never be released back into the community while there remains the slightest danger that you reoffend. This is the view I express publicly and to the Home Secretary in my report. So, life imprisonment should mean what it says, imprisonment for life. Hatch's reaction? He smirked. In true crime cases that we all read and hear, we often see people described as monsters. Surely this is one such individual when the term is absolutely accurate. Removing Hatch from the streets forever just had to be the correct decision. Outside court, Sean's parents, John and Lynn, had understandably strong feelings. They said, We feel such a sense of emptiness and despair. The day Sean was murdered, part of us died with him. We don't pity Hatch. We don't despise or hate him. It goes much deeper than that. We can't find the words to express our feelings. Although Hatch murdered our son, others must take some of the blame. Why, when a doctor states that this man is extremely dangerous, is he released back into the community to roam the streets near young children? One of his conditions for release was that he attends a clinic for treatment for his sexual urges, which he never did. Why didn't the probation service properly supervise him? And why, when he was received over 40 visits from doctors at Felton Remand Centre, did they not pick up on the perverted things he'd written? Why did his mother not bring these letters he'd written to the authorities' attention? Over the years, the amount of money the state has spent on Hatch for so-called treatment has been thousands of pounds, but to what end? Our son's life. Now this isn't the end of our story, far from it. As the family of Sean Williams attempted to carry on with some sort of a life, Hatch started his time in prison. Clearly someone guilty of such a horrific crime would be at risk from attack by the prisoners. For his own safety, Hatch was sent to Full Sutton Prison in Yorkshire, in the northeast of the UK, which housed some of the most violent, dangerous and uh, high-profile criminals in the entire prison population. Current residents you may have heard of include Jeremy Bamber, who was convicted in 1986 of the murder of his adoptive parents, his adoptive sister and his sister's six-year-old twins in the Essex farmhouse. Another resident is Dennis Nielsen, who murdered at least 12 young men in a series of killings committed between 1978 and 1983 in London. In 2010, a new inmate arrived at Full Sutton Prison. Damien Folkes, then aged 35, a father of a young daughter and a convicted armed robber. He was transferred there from Franklin Jail in Durham, another of Britain's most secure prisons. Known as Dib Dob to Friends, Falks had been serving a life sentence with a minimum 12-year tariff. He was high on crack cocaine and £4,000 in debt to his drug dealer when he went on a violent spree with a 12-inch knife. Just to give you an idea, one terrified victim with a two-year-old child awoke to find Folks in her home, brandishing the knife and demanding money. It must have been absolutely terrifying. Now, the, the reason that Folks was transferred to Full Sutton is that he'd attempted to murder a fellow inmate at Franklin Jail. 
The inmate he tried to kill was arguably the most hated prisoner in the UK, Ian Huntley, who I'm sure you're all familiar with. Huntley was serving life for the two murders in Soham in August 2002 of two 10-year-old girls, Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Folks had assembled a makeshift but effective weapon by melting a razor blade onto plastic cutlery. He knew that Huntley had been working as a cleaner at the prison and he waited until Huntley had finished his shift before he attacked. Now, the first Huntley knew of the attack was when folks approached him without any warning at all and he slashed his neck with his homemade weapon that we spoke about. Folks chased Huntley, trying to stab him again. He tried several times to stab or to to slash Huntley in the chest, but Huntley managed to get away. Evidence from Huntley's bloodstained shirt shows that two blows were struck, one to the neck and one to the chest. A prison officer then arrived and distracted folks by telling him to drop the weapon. Huntley, fighting for his life, threw furniture at folks and barricaded himself behind a door, which folks tried to force open. More prison officers arrived and folks gave himself up, saving Huntley from further attack. Following this attack, Huntley was left with a seven-inch gaping hole in his neck. He needed 21 stitches and spent three days in hospital. Following the attack, folks said, I hope I've killed him. I've been planning it for weeks. I slit Huntley's throat for the crimes he has committed. Later in court, he showed how he injured Huntley by mimicking a slashing action across his own throat and later shook his head as if disappointed when the court said it was only good fortune that his victims survived. Now, the hatred widely felt for Huntley and it's, it's hard to overestimate just how hated Ian Huntley is in the UK. This meant that folks became a bit of a celebrity after the attack. He became known as the Avenger, both inside and outside prison. And there were even groups set up on Facebook and other networking sites to praise him and his actions. The, the reaction of folks' own stepson, Lewis, echoed the views of many when he said, He did it for Holly and Jessica, and I'd like to pat him on the back. Most people will think Damien is a hero. I think he should be given a medal. The only pity is he didn't do a better job. Maybe due to the level of attention folks had received after the attack on Huntley, while on remand for that assault, he'd already identified his next victim. On the evening of 10th of February at 7.24pm, the local police received a call from Full Sutton Jail reporting there was an incident ongoing at the prison. At 8.07, they received a further call stating that a 38-year-old man who'd been involved in the incident had died. The man who had died was Colin Hatch. He'd been murdered by Damien Folks. On the day of Hatch's death, guards had received a tip-off from another prisoner that Folks had armed himself, so he was being watched on CCTV. These pictures initially showed him on good form. He seemed happy, non-aggressive and non-confrontational. At 6.40pm, he told a prison guard he was going to watch TV, but instead he headed to a cell where he knew Hatch was visiting. This was located just three doors away from his own cell. He was armed with a piece of wood and another handmade stabbing weapon. Folks quickly told the other cellmate to leave before barricading the door with a locker under a bedhead. 
Folks were seen through the cell spy hole, binding Hatch's feet and mouth and tearing strips from bed linen. He put a ligature around his neck. Now, the guards, they didn't see this as an attempt on Hatch's life, but it was a hostage situation and folks had reassured them that he didn't intend to harm Hatch. Although the door could have been opened from the outside by removing hinges, folks told guards, if I so much as hear a key in the lock, I will kill Hatch. Folks used tissue paper to cover the spy hole, but the evidence gathered after the killing revealed clearly what what must have happened next. Folks lifted Hatch onto the bed and applied ligatures to his feet and his neck to prevent him from moving. By attaching multiple ligatures to his neck, Folks had made a single strong weapon and he pulled on it through the bedhead, strangling Hatch for 30 seconds. Despite officers hearing noises indicating that a struggle was underway, Folks kept insisting that Hatch was still alive. Finally, officers stormed the cell and they found Folks there and Hatch was dead. Folks told officers about attacking in Huntley and said, the motive for Huntley and Hatch was because they both attacked children. He told officers, he's a nonce, he doesn't deserve to live. Folks also said he was upset because he'd missed his grandmother's funeral. Later, he claimed he had heard voices in his head and he believed that Hatch was telepathically trying to communicate with him and asking him to kill him. On Tuesday the 4th of October 2011, Folks stood in Hull Crown Court where he pleaded guilty to the attempted murder of Huntley. Although he was initially charged with Hatch's murder, his plea of manslaughter was accepted on the grounds of his diminished responsibility. After telling the court he had not slept for 48 hours, he grinned at the public gallery, where he locked eyes with the mother of Colin Hatch. Folks claimed he was motivated to commit both attacks because they were offenders against children. Folks said, They just do my head in. It was the same when I did Huntley. The court heard that Folks had a long criminal record dating back to 1990, mainly robberies and weapons offences. Three psychiatrists and two psychologists examined him and agreed that he has deep-seated disorder of great severity. Folks had a severe personality disorder, is and will remain a danger. Now, there was some poignancy really that, that Folks who he's got an 8-inch self-inflicted wound down the left of his face and a scorpion tattoo on the right, if you can picture him. He kissed the badge of his Arsenal shirt in the dock and smirked at the public. Sean Williams, as you recall, was Arsenal crazy. And after being convicted of murdering Sean, Hatch too had smirked. It is, of course, difficult to have any sympathy with Hatch even though he suffered a terrifying and violent death. However, the authorities again seem to have got the situation very wrong. One senior source said, It beggars belief that someone who has a burning hatred of paedophiles should be housed in the same wing as someone like Hatch. The reaction of the family of Sean Williams was interesting, and not what many would expect, I think. His mum said the following, My husband... My former husband, John, rang when he saw the news on TV and it's fair to say that both he and my daughter Sarah were ecstatic at the news. John said justice had finally been done after 18 years. Lynn felt anything but euphoric. She continued, 
Hearing the news that Hatch had been murdered himself just brought back all the memories. I feel numb at the moment. It feels just like the day Sean died and I've just been going through everything in my mind. I don't feel pleased about what happened to Hatch. He's died leaving so many questions unanswered. What I do feel though is that perhaps now his family will begin to understand what dealing with grief is all about. She, she added this, I did ask the authorities if I could visit Hatch to talk to him. There were things I wanted to know, for instance why there were certain bruises on Sean's body. I've always wanted to know exactly what happened once he got Sean into that flat, because over the years I've had nightmares about what might or what might not have been done to my son. So, as you've, as you've just heard, today it's been, a, it's been a disturbing case. Colin Hatch and Ian Huntley, two of the most dangerous and most hated, generally hated people in the UK, both linked by another psychopath with a self-professed hatred for child killers, Damien Folks. When we look at Sean's murder, there are clear questions for the authorities who did not realise the severity of Hatch's intent and allowed him to go free and to kill. Later, with prison authorities, the questions are asked again how a man like Folks could possibly have been given access to Hatch. Tangentially, one of, one of the things that hits me in this case is the mothers of these people. Of course, our real sympathy lies with Sean's mum, Lynn. None of us can quite imagine the horror of what she's had to endure over the last 20, 20 odd years. You just can't even begin to comprehend it. Even after Hatch's death, Lynn spoke about visiting Sean the next day to tell him what had happened. And despite all that had happened with her son, Hatch's mum was still in court to see the, the killer of her son sentenced. And as, as for folks, his mum, after the trial, she said, I last spoke to him on Saturday. I, I can't believe this. I just feel so numb and angry. I still love him because I'm his mum and I'm all that he has. He seemed happy enough in his new prison and said he had made some new friends. It seems odd to us, doesn't it, that she's still talking about her son making friends. But then, as parents, whatever our children do, most of us still forgive them. Or even if we can't forgive them, we still go on loving them. This, this must be so hard when, you're, when your child has committed such, such heinous crimes of this nature. It's very tempting to rejoice at the death of Hatch and the serious injury to Huntley, and many did. In our society, even people like this have the right to be protected when they're in custody, don't they? Of course, in terms of human rights, all lives are equal. But this is one case where you can't help but wonder, is that really the case? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. Please have a look at our website at uktruecrime.com. If you register there, drop your email address for us. We will be in contact shortly about a very exciting event coming up and you can be one of the first people to hear about that. Otherwise, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Bye for now.